Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Don't be upset by a northern bloke. Ronaldo, he looks at me, smiled, and he never done it again. What's in there, Mickey? He went, ah, that's about 300 grand in there, kid. If I'm on the opposite end of an argument, Piers Morgan, that's a very comfortable position that I'm happy to be in. I think I'd be up there with one of the most irritating cricketers. Tom, we were getting on so well until that question. <laughs> you guys are going to get absolutely hammered. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special episode of the TWS Sports Podcast. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you will know that occasionally we get the opportunity to speak to people from outside of sport and have the chance to sit down to them and speak to them about their career. Well, today we had the pleasure of speaking to a Hollywood actor and writer. He is most famous for his role as a writer on the film Jaws. He worked alongside Steven Spielberg to create one of the most famous and iconic films in the world. We were also joined by Sarah from the SJ Child Show as myself, Nigel, Tom and Sarah got the chance to speak to Hollywood legend Carl Gottlieb. Well, you, you started off in a comedy. Uh, and I was just wondering, you know, was that something you always wanted to do? As Was it something you did as a kid? Uh, no, I, I, was not, I was not the class clown. Did stand out for my verbal abilities. I, you know, I started reading very early. I read all, you know, whenever we had classwork, I read the textbook, you know, the first week of the semester and, you know, goofed off the rest of the time. Uh, all through my 12 years of, 12, 16 years of schooling, uh, all I remember as a constant refrain was, uh, you, know, Carl, you know, Carl's not living up to his potential, which was fine with me because uh, I was... I was trying to get by on the minimum effort, you know, but I, I noticed very early on, I could read, I could write, and it was easy, and I was rewarded for it. You know, I mean, you know, I would get high grades, you know, teachers would like me, I could uh, write a term paper, you know, in an evening, I didn't have to, you know, do any research. So I had that verbal facility, which stood me in good, and then, when I joined the committee in San Francisco, 
notice that my my outgoing ways leaned toward comedy. I would, you know, do do and say stuff to get to get laughs. And at the committee, that was our stock and trade. I mean, that, that that's what we were in business for was to get laughs. So I did, and then one thing led to another. You mentioned the committee there. I mean, the committee was is a bit of a melting pot of talent, wasn't it? There's some big names that came from the uh, the committee. Well, there was a lot of us. Uh, P- Peter Bonner's the director and actor. Howard Hessman, uh, actor named Mel Stewart, kid named Chris Ross, who did very well before he died. In those days, you know, uh, improvisational acting. It's hard to think back, you know, fifty-five years, but back in the sixties, uh, improvisation was to acting what the actor's studio was to the previous generation when actors learned the Stanislavski method. And then the next generation of actors, or the actors that came of age in the 60s, were all about improv and the rules of improv. And everybody was starting an improv company. Where there was, when I started, there was like four improv companies in America and everybody who practiced the craft, you know, knew, we knew each other, you know, from different companies in different cities. There was the premise, the committee, Second City and uh, Compass Theater. And then after that, of course, came the Deluge, you know, the Groundlings, Upright Citizens Brigade, you know, hundreds of them, you know, every every five or six or seven people that got together said, let's start an improv company. <laughs> so, so, so they did. I always think that improv is one of the most difficult things because you, you're there on the spot and you've just got to make it up as you go along. How, yes, how did you find that? Well, you know, it, uh, you do make it up as you go along, but uh, there are rules. I mean, the most popular one has been become a cliche. It's called yes and, you know, because for in school, in drama school, you're taught that, you know, conflict, Conflict is drama. The drama is conflict and resolution. And yeah. improvisation, the success of an improvisation comes from the agreement of the improvisers, the willingness to accept whatever reality is put in front of you and subsume it and make it your own reality and, and contribute to it, you know, to reply in character and reply appropriately to the place that you've just created out of nothing. Uh, you know, you have to be mindful. You have to pay attention. Listening is the more important than speaking. Uh, so, yeah. you know, the, the more you hear, the more you can do, and the better you get at it. And it's, it's funny that in a in a well improvised scene where the actors are really on top of their game, it's almost impossible to tell it from a scripted scene that they've been performing for years, because every line seems to flow organically from the line that came before it and the scene builds its own rhythm and, and uh, pace and when you get to a blackout if you're lucky the light man will realize that and <laughs> turn the lights out and the audience will applaud like crazy <laughs> it, it sounds simple but that's uh, that's how it works i don't think it is simple for one minute uh, carl you, you moved on from the committee to doing comedy writing is, is that right i've done my research correct there yes I, I i started as a stage manager and a technician and then i became an actor in the committee in san francisco and then the committee came to los angeles we opened an edition of the show on the sunset strip in la and in the heart of you know 
LA and we were seen by everybody. We got surprisingly good reviews across the board. We got a, a rave from Daily Variety and Hollywood Reporter, which was the two trade papers. We got raves from the LA Times and the Herald Examiner, which were the mainstream dailies. And we got raves from the Avatar and the LA Reader, which were the underground press. So, you know, we, we kind of covered the spectrum and uh, we were doing comedy every night, you know, six nights a week, 13 shows a week. And people saw us, especially producers and directors of other things, including the Smothers Brothers, who hired me as a writer, performer, and Robert Altman, who hired me as an actor for MASH, the original film I was in. So, you know, it, uh, coming to L.A. was, as we all knew, would be a big career move and would uh, change our lives as we joined the mainstream. Because we were always proud of our kind of collective, you know, rebel position as outliers. But, you know, we, we got we got popular, so it wasn't, you know, so easy to be a rebel outlier when the mainstream admires you and wants to see you. Was there an appetite for rebellious comedy? I'm just thinking the 1980s when the, the alternative comedy scene came into... Uh into fashion in, in the UK. Was it a similar sort of thing for the, uh, in America? Well, uh, the UK had its own tradition going back to the goon shows. You know, the goon shows gave us uh, musical acts like Flanders and Swan and Beyond the, uh, the Beyond the Fringe. From there, it was a small leap to Monty Python uh, and uh, the Young Ones. Uh, a lot of a lot of great English comedy, along a separate but a separate tradition. They didn't come from improv; they came from clever Oxbridge grads who who uh, yeah. formed their own companies. Performed, you know, French and Saunders were brilliant. I stumbled on them. I, I was in London and I went to see. I mean, I guess I was in London at some period of time when the arts were exploding. I, I walked into a jazz club on Oxford Street and heard Birelli de Gren, who was 16 at the time, playing. And I went to a co comedy club uh, in Soho, uh, or the West End, right around there. And I saw French and Saunders and Alexi Sales yeah, yeah. and, you know, the, just the, the people who went on to become the young ones. But at that time, uh, I, French and Saunders were doing a routine called American Girls about two American girls who see each other at the airport. And I, I could have sworn they were American. They did the voices so perfectly. And then later I you know, discovered they were as English as all get out. They did a very funny, they did a very funny TV series. That was, their first season was brilliant. So there was, you know, the, there was a lot of really good, funny stuff going on, uh, on both, on both sides of the pond and beyond the fringe actually, exchange they did an exchange with second city at one point where the second city company went to london and beyond the fringe went to the second city theater in, in uh, greenwich village about 63 or 64 in there somewhere but there are there you know the improv was the the wave of the future now it's you know everybody does it when using the committee you said you you know you, you started life as an actor in the committee so was it quite natural for you to move on to being an actor in films? You know, everybody's dream is to be a movie star. 
at that time in the 60s everybody in rock and roll wanted to be in movies and everybody in movies wanted to be in rock and roll it was it was uh it was kind of funny but uh um the natural progression of things was, you know, you were discovered as an unknown. You, you made a success. Uh, you got on the broadcast media. Uh, if you were a stand-up comic, you got your own TV show like Seinfeld or many of the others. Uh, Tim and Allen. There's a the sitcom world was full of people who were successful stand-ups who, as a result of their successful stand-up, got a show. Uh, Ray Romano. I mean, that, that was the... Uh, that's what replaced vaudeville, I guess, as the training ground. I was lucky enough to have my feet in all camps. I was an improviser. I was a, a young actor in Hollywood. I was writing successful television comedy. A chance to be at ground zero. I mean, just it's kind of like being in Paris in the 30s or 20s or New York in the 40s. It was, uh, it was, it was a great time, and you know, I looked, I looked into it, and I was. I had made a decision when I left college. I graduated, kind of made a vow. I said, oh, I'm only going to work in show business. I know I can write. I'm a pretty good stage technician. I was a stage manager in those days. So I'm, I'm not going to be a cab driver or an office temp or you know, <laughs> a stock boy or any of the jobs that you took you know, to tide you over between showbiz gigs. I said, I'm only going to work in show business. And for a couple of years, you know, I, the most I ever made was 25 bucks a week plus meals uh, and doing lights and sound at a Greenwich Village nightclub for, uh, for other comedians. But it was Greenwich Village in the 60s, and so there was Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary and Phil Oaks and, you know, the, the, the world of, of uh, modern entertainment was just off of the folk music was breaking out. It was... Uh, it's a great time to be alive, I can tell you. We're going to move on to uh, your your involvement with Jaws, and I'll start off the question, then we've got some questions from Tom. How did you get the part of Henry Meadows for the film? Uh, Steven Spielberg and I had the same agent, and he was uh, kind of a pioneer. He was the first agent who believed in packaging his clients together for projects. So he put me together with Stephen. We were both clients. His name was Mike Metavoy. He later on became head of United Artists and he ran studios. But at that time he was a young hustling agent and he put me and Stephen together and said, just, you know, write something, you know, Carl will write, Stephen will direct, and you know, I'll package it. And so we worked together. You know, we wrote a couple of scripts together I appeared as an actor in a couple of Stevens television movies, just doing you know day parts, where I would kind of improvise my lines. He could he could count on me to do that, uh, and and uh, we got on well. And when he got the script for Jaws, he sent me a copy saying "Eviscerate it" on the cover. So I wrote him a memo of what I thought was right with the script and what was wrong with the script. And he showed it to Zanuck and Brown, the producers, and they had me in for a meeting and they said, well, and Stephen and I had really strong ideas. So he said, look, why don't you come on the picture as an actor, like I've used you before, pick one of the parts, it's a running part, you know, that you'll be on the location for a while. So I picked Meadows, which was a co-starring part. If you look back at the original 
videos of, of uh, Jaws, I get co-star billing with Lorraine Gary and Murray Hamilton. Uh, you know, it's, it's Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw in <laughs> Jaws with Carl Gottlieb, Lorraine Gary, and Murray Hamilton. Because Meadows, Meadows was a big part. But as I started rewriting it with Stephen, only three weeks before we started shooting, we took the script apart, and I wound up writing myself out of the script because the character, uh, as a writer, I could see that the character was not as necessary as the Howard Sackler thought. So I wrote myself out, and then subsequent, obviously in subsequent editions, I'm less important. But I was on the set writing, and when the smoke and dust cleared, I had a shared screenplay credit on what turned out, you know, nobody knew to be the iconic film, you know, most iconic film of all time. So, and still, and still popular and still producing an income for me. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, it's number eight in the Empire Top 100 Films of all time. It beats his name. Well, when, 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 uh, when Jaws, Joe, when Jaws became the top grossing, it's, it's still, I mean, it's a monument to the genius of Spielberg. I mean, of the top 10 films, you know, adjusted for inflation, I think he's got four or five of them. That's (laughs) unprecedented in the history of the movies. I mean, if it it wasn't for history and adjustment for inflation, he might have 10, but, you know, Gone with the Wind (laughs) and uh, Sound of Music are still up there and Titanic and Jaws, and then the, all the Spielberg movies. But not Caveman. What? Not, sadly, not Caveman. Although it did, well, it did well Unbelie- Unbelievably. Uh, I'm going to hand you over to Tom now, Carl, who's got some questions about Jaws for you. What scene, if you had the chance, would you improve on and why? What scene would I improve on? Yeah. I don't want to be guilty of hubris, but... Uh, it's kind of liking, it's kind of asking uh, Michelangelo, do you want to have David with two fingers or four fingers or should he be standing <laughs> on one leg or two legs? I don't know. It's the it's David. You know, it's, it's the, the statue is an integrated whole. You, can, you start tugging at a thread here and a thread there and it all comes apart. Uh, there are, I you know, I, I don't know what I would change um doesn't doesn't seem to be a whole lot i mean it, it's no I, i'm sorry <laughs> i can't give you that's a good answer, a good answer. It's, a, <laughs> it's a thoughtful question but i you know uh it's a, kind of like a sophie's choice you know which of your kids do you want to give, give a <laughs> they're taking some of your family to the camps which kids do you keep which kids do you let go <laughs> knowing that they're going to Auschwitz, you know uh, well, the next one's pretty detailed because uh, it's. Uh, I found it out from the, the documentary. Uh, have you ever found out what happened to the extended uh, Alex death scene? And what I mean by that is, is there was a scene that was basically lost in time, where it was more detailed and dark, where they actually used the animatronic shark. But um, I've always wondered, like, is the scene definitely on cutting room floor or not? There's very few, very few outtakes in Jaws because we use almost all of it. There's, a, there's some outtakes on the Blu-ray and on the on the documentaries, but there's not much, and there's certainly not much in the way of a complete scene. 
there's a scene with the uh, Quint intimidating the kid in the music store. The movie is one of those things that, that's you know like, like like when you're when you're cooking and you're improvising and you're throwing some you know, meat and spices and chicken you're simmering it and you've got the stock pot boiling over there and you put it together and it's a prize-winning dish that people go crazy first of all it's very hard to, to recreate it until you because you, you, know, you may not have written the recipe down precisely and there's a function of so many uncontrolled variables like you know the, the, how long it was at a high heat how long it was there's just so many variables involved especially with Show business. It's not you know you you can make formulaic movies. God knows the, the big superhero and action movies are all kind of a familiar template. But Jaws, you know, doesn't fit the mold. It's a two act structure instead of a three act structure, and it's just not not conducive to hyperanalysis. I, in my view, I mean, people make a career out of it, and there's websites all over. Where, where, where they are uh, exploring it, but uh, it's 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 just very hard to quantify. How grateful did you feel when Jaws became the successful movie it is known as today? Well, obviously, for for career reasons and for ego reasons, I was uh, very happy. I mean, you you can't buy that; uh, it just happens. And I was lucky enough to have two movies that I worked on become icons of Jaws in the horror action genre and The Jerk, which is a you know, balls-out comedy. And the, both of them are iconic films in their genre. Uh, but the, the Jaws came first. And it's, uh, you just have kind of, you, I guess you just kind of have to accept it and not let your ego get out of control. I mean, you, obviously, it gives you a healthy ego knowing your name is on an iconic film. My my favorite thing with having done that movie is uh, when you're chatting with a stranger in an airport or someplace, and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a writer. And they say, oh, anything I might have seen. <laughs> and sometimes... If they're nice people, I say, yeah, I did a little movie called Jaws. and Oh, my God. I'm gonna... But if they have an attitude when they say, oh, anything I might have seen in that kind of snarky way, I go, yeah, Jaws. And they, you know, <laughs> Put it back on them. <laughs> yeah, and there's no, 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 no more snark after that. Yeah. Then, 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 it's, yeah. Uh, then, then it becomes hero worship, which is a little trying but <laughs> when was the last time you spoke to steven spielberg we attended uh, a memorial service for sid scheinberg together i mean we were both at sid's memorial service and we stopped and chatted for a while but like i say in the jaws log nowadays the only time i ever see him is we're both wearing tuxedos and it's you know it's an industry event of some sort and he's now steven spielberg i mean you know capital boldface thing and and uh i'm not i mean that's why he hangs out with tom hanks there's a trajectory that you should be aware of in that comes with fame uh you start you're scuffling you're 
working with a bunch of your broke friends, you know, you're all young actors together, young comedians working bars and open mic nights and stuff. And you become successful and you become more successful and you become a star and you're, you're, you're still hanging out with some of your friends. They're letting you pick up the check all the time now. In the old days, you'd divide up the check, but when you become successful and have a lot of money, your friend, when the check comes, your friends kind of look the other way and you're expected to pick it up and pay it. And then pretty soon you reach, and so, you know, that becomes a little bit of a bore. Yeah. And then there comes a point where the only people that you talk to at any intimate level are only people you pay your manager, your agent, your masseuse, your nutritionist, the carpenter who does work at your house, uh, you know, your makeup artist, your pick an entourage occupation. But those are the only people you talk to. Most of some of them will tell you the, the truth to a point, but none of them is going to say anything that's going to get them fired. Why would they do that? It's, it's you know it's a meal ticket. So. You're, you've got only you're only talking to people on the payroll. Then you have if you're not if you're lucky, you break out of that and make friends who are peers. Like Spielberg hangs out with Tom Hanks, who can afford a yacht as well. You know, you, you hang out with people who can do what you can do. You know, if you if you say let's go let's go skiing in Aspen tomorrow. Well, you need to have three friends who have private planes who who can go. You're if you're doing it with your entourage. You got to pick up the tab. You got to pick up the hotel rooms in Aspen. You got to pick up the transportation. You know, you're 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 paying for everything. At some point, you become aware of that and go, wait, wait a second here. Maybe I don't want to do this, or maybe I've outgrown these these folks. And you keep who you can, but you know, uh, the short answer is no. Stephen and I don't hang out. <laughs> Haven't for years. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation consultations and quotations so give us a call today are you planning on seeing the george replica shark at the uh, academy museum of motion pictures i'm hoping to eventually see bruce himself <laughs> well i as a, i'm a member of the academy and i'm a member of the museum and i will go kind of when the exhibit's ready it's not finished yet but uh, I mean, I'm looking forward to visiting the Academy Museum. They spend a lot of money on it. Uh, the, the shark has a prominent place. They've you know, retrieved the last remaining shark from the junkyard in, in, in the San Fernando Valley, restored it. So uh, yeah, I, you know, the, the museum is, is, is swell, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm leaving a lot of my jaws manuscripts and memorabilia to the academy museum carl i can't jump in that's a question i've got um when we heard that you were coming on a few people got in contact with me and wanted to ask you a question so i've got a question here from one of our listeners and their question is 
Why write Jaws about a man-eating shark? Do you think because of Jaws, this has caused decades of fear of a mo- beautiful marine predator? <laughs> uh, yes. I, you know, eventually <laughs> went to his death, regretful that the popular culture took the turn that it did. Uh, and the shark became, you know, everybody's favorite villain. And then when we, you know, heard about the decimation of shark population by Japanese factory fishermen in the Pacific, it's like, you know, people didn't really care. Meanwhile, they were just netting sharks by the millions, cutting their fins off for soup and throwing the mutilated sharks back in the water to die, which was, you know, awful. And and Benchley, you know, devoted a large part of his, his time and his estate to foundations to save shark wildlife and uh, all the creatures of the sea, but particularly sharks, which became everybody's favorite punching bag. Although, the, you know, your chances of being bitten by a shark are less than being hit by lightning or having a coconut fall on your head. So, <laughs> that's that's the, the sad legacy of what we did is to make the shark everybody's favorite villain. And here we are like 45, 46 years later. And whenever I'm introduced to somebody and it comes out that I've written Jaws, the first comment out of their mouth is, oh my God, after I saw that movie, I didn't go in the water for a year. I didn't go swimming for six months or I didn't go in the swimming pool or I I shied away from the toilet because there was water. And I know know they're going to say that. And it's the first thing I hear out of strangers' mouths, I think is a tribute to me as an actor that I I act as if I had never heard that before. I say, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it had a great effect on you. Yeah, you know. But I've, I've, I've gotten that for years. So how long did, from the very first word written down on paper about Jaws to kind of completion of production. How long did it take you to to film Jaws? It took Stephen, I think, five months to film Jaws. I was only involved in three months because when they got finished with all the dialogue and all the scenes in which actors talk to each other, essentially I was done. What Stephen and the others had to do was stay there for another two months or so getting all the shark footage and all the stuff that happens at sea. Um, But once that boat sails out to sea, essentially my my job was over, except for, of course, the the Indianapolis scene, which I had written before, you know, that was was filmed on shore. Once they they had filmed every dialogue scene and everything that was written per se, per se, you know, every, every written word was acted and recorded and photographed. Then, then I was done. And I, I had saved up enough money to buy a little <coughs> BMW 2002, a little square BMW from 1974. My wife and I bought a new BMW with my money and we drove it to California stopping in Nashville to visit our friends who were shooting Nashville. And then a couple of months later, the guys, you know, the guys got home from the vineyard 
much the worse for wear. <laughs> there are a lot of technical difficulties, I believe, with the shark. I believe the first one actually sank to the bottom of the ocean. Could you uh, tell us any more about the technical problems that you had with the shark? Both in the, the book and the documentaries uh, go on at great lengths about how the shark did, did not work or worked imperfectly and we had to shoot around it. And luckily for everybody, Stephen and I were both fans of a 1950s horror film called The Thing, which in which you don't see the monster until 40 minutes into the film. So we said, well, let's take a, let's take a tip from The Thing. You know, you don't have to show the, the monster doing its work. You don't have to begin with, uh, you know, we, sure, we want to we want to kill Chrissy, have Chrissy die a terrible death, but we didn't have to show a shark for that. You know, just we we realized we could get as much horror and as much drama out of the effects of the shark rather than having seeing the shark actually biting people and, and doing its shark thing. So, in, in being inventive and trying to find things that suggested the shark just off frame. Uh, I, I think that's part of what made the movie so good. Is, Definitely. And and the movie is very, is well known for its mem- memorable quotes. Obviously, the, probably the most famous being that you're going to need a, need a bigger boat. Did yeah. How did you come up with that line? Did you write that line in? And <laughs> how did you come up with that? Well, for years, I thought Roy had ad-libbed that line. And I kind of very generously refused to take credit for it. I would say, look, you know, Roy had, had lived it. <clears throat> I'll take some responsibility as a writer because I did create a character, Brody the Sheriff, that when Roy inhabited the character, anything he said would be appropriate, would be in character. It wasn't just an actor padding his part, uh, which is, you know, what happened. Then, as it turns out, I was watching one of the many documentaries about the making of Jaws, and there's uh, there's Roy in an interview in the 80s saying, oh, yeah, no, that line was in the script. So I said, oh, I should have been taking credit for that all these years. (laughs) But the, the, the actuality is that Zanuck and Brown were stingy, and they did not rent enough heavy equipment to make the movie easy. Everything had to be improvised. The All the camera equipment was on this barge called the SS Garage Sale. And people were kept saying, we're going to need a bigger boat, because they did. They needed a bigger boat for equipment, for the crew to have their lunch if they were at sea. There was all kinds of reasons for having a bigger boat. And they used to say that. Whenever anything went wrong on the set, if a, if a light fell down or somebody went in the water, somebody would always say, you're going to need a bigger boat. So it was a common ad lib uh, amongst the whole crew, not just Roy. A lot of people said that. And then when Roy said it in the movie, he said it at a perfect time. And the, the, the cutting of the movie was such that it worked perfectly where it was and became the iconic line that it is, um, almost almost by accident. Carl, what I just wanted to ask is the, the theme tune of Jaws is probably one of the most iconic theme tunes of, of movies there's ever been. 
was that anything to do with, with you or Stephen, or was that like a, diff, a completely separate company who came up with the music? How did the theme that tune was, come about? That was, the gen, that was the genius of John Williams. you got to remember, of the two talent Oscars, Verna Fields won an Academy Award for editing, and John Williams won an Academy Award for the score. And it's, and it's not just da-dum, da-dum, although that's the greatest contribution. On the set, on location, Stephen brought some records with him, including the score uh, for the Seahawk by Eric, I think it's by Eric Korngold, old Warner Brothers pirate movie. And in the Seahawk, some of that epic, uh, you know, pirate movie music finds its way into Williams' score in the one barrel and the two barrel chase sequences on the open sea. That's very much old Hollywood scoring. But when John came up with the theme for the shark. He went up to Stephen's house and played it for him on the piano. Ding, 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 ding. And Stephen said, that's it. Stephen was very disappointed. He said, you know, that's it. He, and, and John said, no, you got to hear it with, you know, eight basses and 20 cellos all playing at the bottom end of their register acoustic. You'll get a feeling for it. So come to the recording session. So when you went to the session and you heard, don't, don't, when you heard it, performed you 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 got it so you know and, and i think to stephen's credit he laid back and said all right you know you're the composer you think it's gonna work you do it and the result was i think johnny williams first oscar as well as writing you've appeared on camera including as mentioned earlier mash and uh, also clueless which do you prefer um acting or writing I prefer acting because, you know, almost everything is done for you. You've got a trailer. They tell you when to come out. You stand on your marks. You say your lines. Director says cut. You go back to your trailer, have a coffee, have a cookie. Uh, a writer, you're, you know, you don't work in a company. You don't work on a set. You work by yourself in isolation at a keyboard. I described the process of writing once as making ever-decreasing concentric circles around the keyboard until there's no place else left to go. And it's, long, it's lonely, painful work. I don't like writing, but I, you know, and it comes easy for me. You know, I, 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 have, I don't um, struggle with writing once I'm writing, but it's not something I voluntarily do. There's two kinds of writers. Habitual writers like Stephen King or Georgia Simenon, wake up in the morning and have to write a thousand words before lunch. And they and they do every day of their lives. And they have a huge body of work, much of it good work. And then there's deadline writers like me. I don't write unless I'm getting paid. So sometimes if the motivation if the my motivation is a check in the mail. If the check hasn't come, I don't feel obligated to write. So so when the check does come, I have mixed feelings. I go, oh great, they paid. Now I've actually got to write this thing. <laughs> so, so, so I do. Like George, I think George Bernard Shaw, somebody asked him, does he like writing? And he replied, I like having written. <laughs> the actual process. When it's oh, done. Actual process is lonely and painful. Yes. So Carl, when it, with your writing then, do you, would you write a film from start to finish, or do you come with maybe the ending first and then think of the start? How, what's your process of, of writing a film? Almost every, uh, every 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 film, every project is different. They all have their own dynamic. 
I remember I was I was writing a book. I was write, writing Crosby's biography with him, and I had done a lot of interviews. And I was putting the, putting them together from transcripts. And at one point, I still had uh, what I thought was a lot of work left to be done. But I was I went over everything that I had written so far, and in my computer I had files of chapters and sequences that I had written that I hadn't found a use for that were you know that were not in the book. And I found this foreword that I had written way back at the beginning of the project. And I read the foreword and I realized this is also an afterword. This is also a summary of the story. It's of my views on the subject. I think this fits in right here. So I did a cut and paste. And it's the only time I've ever exclaimed out loud at the computer. I went, ah, it's done. It was just as soon as I, you know, made a few edits for context, you know, to change it from a forward to a summary of the book, it just dropped in and I was done. I was done like two weeks ahead of schedule because this piece that I had written four months earlier worked. But, you know, you can't always be that lucky. And you have to write, you know, eventually you got to, you know, start, you know, it was, it was a dark and lonely night or how, however you begin your book. <laughs> Usually, you know, the, and everybody has different methods, but you know, generally, you know, you, if you begin at the beginning and plug your way through, um, that, you know, after a certain amount of time, you got a book. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time outlining. I don't begin writing a book or a screenplay until I've outlined it pretty thoroughly. Then it's relatively easy. I put the outline in my computer. I start writing the first page of the outline. And as I write it, I delete it from my file. So now I've got a completed first scene and the rest of the outline, I can just scroll up and see what I've got left to do. So I, and I work my way through until toward the end is only, you know, a page or so left and the, and behind me on, on top is the finished work or at least the finished first draft ready for editing. So that's the process. And a lot of books that I'm reading now, contemporary fiction, it seems to be a trend in contemporary fiction to write uh, out of continuity, to write out of time, to write parallel stories. So a lot more work goes into the organization of the elements than the simple narrative and then what happened, which is more traditionally how books are written. If there's to make a reboot of Jaws, if there's to add to, to the franchise, would you like to be involved with it again, Carl? I don't know the new actors that well. You know, most new talent now, with the exception of, you know, the spectacular women, Lady Gaga and, and uh, Megan the Stallion and a few others. I don't know the talent and I don't like their product. I don't like modern stuff and i don't like the actors and actresses who are making it i was going to reboot jaws or do something with it you know i i don't know i mean you know, that was such unique chemistry the actors were so in tune with each other and with the script nobody had an ego except spielberg and and uh and he kept it under control I don't. I don't think about it much because you know it's, it's like if you're going to remake Casablanca, who are you going to get to play Humphrey Bogart? Come on, you know you, yeah. you don't remake Casablanca. 
Yeah. Which has got perfection wiped out of, to it. A bit of hubris to compare Jaws to Casablanca, but it's one of those films that everybody seems to agree in every forum, in every social media platform, that it's not a film that should be remade ever. And, and lots of luck getting it past Spielberg. <laughs> you won an Emmy Award in, ni- in 1969 for your contribution to the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Where did you display the award in your house? Oh, I have a little table in my living room with a little stack of statues on it. And <laughs> a lot of Lucite plaques. There's a uh, there's a little uh, you know hero worshippers shrine set up so, <laughs> so visitors can see my my statues. I wanted to quickly thank you, uh, Carl, because um, it's a pleasure talking to you because George uh, is my favorite movie. So. Thank you so much, Carter. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time and, and everything you've done. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. See you guys. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.